I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with Professor Brian Cox as part of my In Conversation series for W. This podcast is brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with the man who's been credited with making science sexy. He is the Professor of Particle Physics from Manchester University. He's also just broke his own world record for the most tickets sold for a science event. He's also been in a band that's had a number one single. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with Professor Brian Cox. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for doing it as well because you, as, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've just broke your own world record for your for your last tour. Yeah. Over a hundred and fifty thousand tickets sold. Yeah, which is uh, I should say. So the, the world record was most tickets sold for a science tour. I think it was about seven. Before, Before that, so a, we chose a record that was easily breakable. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it took me by surprise actually, because it started before Christmas in in quite small places. You know, just a, it's essentially a cosmology lecture. Well, talking... yeah. I, well, I went to the tour um, and I went to see it in Hammersmith. Yeah. Uh, and I took I took my my godson, who you were you were gracious enough to see afterwards. And it was so interesting because it was I took my godson and my mate his father and so we're sat there and we thought he, he's not going to keep up with this we'll because we'll, we'll, he's he's 12 12 13 Charlie. but he was on it and we were we were after half an hour I was going, what does that mean what does that mean because <laughs> yeah. he's really into physics and, and and in many respects he's part of the generation that you've inspired well i mean it's, it's nice of you to say so and i i think that the, the thing is for me astronomy in particular which is what those shows were mainly about is something that is accessible to everybody. I mean, I got into it when I was four or five years old, I think. Yeah. Uh, as far back as I can remember, I enjoyed looking at the stars. And I, I get asked a lot, you know, why? Why was it at four or five years old? And I, I think it was because I noticed that they changed over the year. And in particular, the constellation of Orion, which is one of the most visible constellations. Yeah. It comes up in September, October, and you see it. I used to see it when I was walking home from school. And I think I associated that with Christmas, so with Christmas presents and things like that. But it was, it, it, so I noticed that the, the stars changed and the constellations changed. And that's something that's available to, to everybody. And so I, I, I'm not surprised that so your 10, 11, 12-year-olds get into astronomy because that's, that's what I did. So the tour, was that, was that driven by you wanting to create that live process of learning within a room of people or was it just driven by the fact that 
the shows that you've done have become so popular that people wanted to be in the same room with you. The reason I wanted to do it is I've always liked giving talks or lecturing. Yeah. I still do at the University of Manchester. I teach there in the autumn, so I like that. We ended up at Wembley Arena. There's 9,000 people there uh, listening to a, essentially a lecture on cosmology. Yeah. But paradoxically, I, I think that it goes quiet and you can hear that people are listening. This, as you say, is, is a cosmology lecture. This is not dumbed down. You know, I'm not suggesting that it's at you know, degree level or PhD level, but when I was there, it's, you, you're, not, you're not trying to compromise with the science you're trying to get across. No, and I don't think you need to. I think that it's one of the, the big mistakes that I think we make sometimes on television is that you underestimate the audience, and particularly uh, younger audiences. As you said, your, um, your, was it your nephew... Your godson, yeah. Oh, your godson came at 12 years old, but he was ready to listen to things about Einstein's general theory of relativity and the, the theories that, that we have now about what happened before the Big Bang. Yeah. But you talk about those things, and, and, and I find 10, 11, 12-year-olds are fascinated, and they'll listen, and they'll sit there, and they'll be quiet. And we, but if you, if you said on television, to a television executive, I want to make a programme for 12-year-olds, then it would end up being, you know, yeah. I don't know what it'd end up being, but it wouldn't end up talking about things like that. But that's the difficulty, I suppose, when you... When you try and distill knowledge that that is is shared by such a small number of people, you know, when you talk about the the people who are discussing science at that level and then trying to popularise it and bring it down, but without losing the purity of the science, and that's a difficult balance to take, isn't it? It, it is, but um, then again, you, if you're trying to explain something, there's a there's a minimum level of information that anybody needs to understand it. So yeah. you, you, you can simplify so much that there's no chance of understanding it because you haven't given exactly, people enough information. Exactly, because you haven't got there, yeah. And you know, I mean, you've done shows like this with thousands of people, and you know when you lose them because people start coughing and shuffling, and, and so you can, you can tell. And, and, and I didn't have that experience, and, and I really did talk about Einstein's theory of general relativity and things like that, which are complicated ideas, and uh, people want to listen. I think people are interested, and they can be underestimated very easily. People, people who are non-scientists and don't have a scientific education or background, but still, I think most people are interested in these ideas of, of where we came from, what is our place in the universe, you know, how did life begin on Earth? How likely is it there'll be life yeah. on Mars or I mean, beyond I the solar I don't think there's a human being that's ever walked on the planet yeah. who at some point hasn't pondered that question. Well, there's one, isn't there? He's president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> well, he knows. <laughs> God told him. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So in 2015, the Royal Society gave you the title of Professor of Public Engagements in the Sciences. That's right. And that role, to me, seems that you're the person with whom there's a public face through which science can filter out to a wider world. But is there anything within that role that allows you to comment on the way science is taught and valued within the education system? Yes, and the, and the, the Royal Society, which I, I should say, if people don't know, is the world's oldest scientific yeah. society. So Newton was a member of the Royal Society, so it goes back yeah. well over 350 years. And, yeah, part of its job is to try and uh, encourage government to help schools teach science in a, better in order to inspire more children to come through into university and do science. Somewhere the idea comes in, I think for many children, that science is too hard and it's for, yeah. you have to be a genius, you have to be Einstein to do it. 
which is entirely false. Um, you don't at all. It's, it's, it's like everything else. It's a question of being interested in practicing, basically. I mean, Einstein famously said, he, he gave a school's talk and he said, look, when I was your age, I was no Einstein. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> it, it, Einstein was actually famously not considered to be very bright at school. And so I think that that message that science is for everyone, and it is certainly not the case that you have to be some kind of freak or genius to make a big contribution to science. It's same, same with music, you know, yeah. you don't have to be Mozart to, to be a musician. But for you as a kid, you know, what was, what was the thing that drew you to science above everything else? Probably astronomy. And yeah. then, but then I, I grew up, I was born in 68, so I grew up in a, in a house that just after the Apollo moon landings, well actually enduring the Apollo moon landings. So I remember my dad was really into that. So he had the newspapers from 1969 when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. and. So, so I think I mixed up astronomy and spaceflight and then Star Wars came along in 1977 yeah. <laughs> and so I mixed that in as well and, and science fiction. And, and I think th this idea of the limitless possibilities out there when you raise your eyes above the horizon has, has always been with me to the point actually where at school I, I went to senior school and I wanted to go when I was 11 because I knew you could do physics and I'd, I'd realised that physics is something to do with astronomy and that's what you need to do. And I decided that I wasn't interested in French, for example, because I didn't want to learn languages because I thought it was a waste of time. I just wanted to do science. So I failed <laughs> my French O-level and then subsequently ended up working at, in Geneva at the Large Hadron Collider. <laughs> and I had to try and learn to speak French, so it turns out it was nonsense, what I thought. So, but but that, it's just, a, I think, an example of the person that I was, that I was very focused on, on learning about science and space. Were you geeky? Were you the geek in school who was ever look, forever looking at the Starts. A bit, yeah. I mean, I had um, the, the birthday I can remember. I was about 10 or 11. I had a, my granddad built me a little shed in his garden. He lived near me. And, and uh, when my mum and dad were working, I used to go for lunch to my granddad's house from school. And he built a shed. And, and I wired it up with a railway transformer. And for my something like my 10th birthday or something, I had a fuse box for my birthday. Because <laughs> I, I wanted four way. Because they're really expensive at the time. I had a four way fuse box. I remember it to put in my shed. So yeah, I was a bit you geeky. geeky. I was a bit, <laughs> but, um, but then I, I um, as I said, I kind of got into music a bit and then, and then became a goth. So I, I turned into a goth and dyed my hair purple and became a different kind of geek with an overcoat. And a, and so how old were you then, late teens? Yeah, I, no, I suppose. Sort of 15, 16, 17. So, so then I, you know, got into wandering around, listening to Bauhaus and looking at the ground for a while. Yeah, <laughs> <And then> <laughs> yeah but the goth, the goth phase is the worst phase for a teenage kid. One of my one of my sons went through a sort of emo goth phase, and the problem is all of his friends look like him. And so, to be honest, I wasn't sure which one came on. We just <laughs> we just put it to bed and fed it. And... <laughs> but for you. And this is the thing that, that strikes me. I mean, you, you have a ch talk with you about science, and I could talk to you all day, and I feel in some respects, it's like playing five-a-side with Steven Gerrard, miles away from where you, your level of understanding, but I'm enjoying it. And, but what, what strikes me about you is there'll be a parent somewhere looking at their teenage son who's 18, 19, who wants to be in a band, doesn't want to go to university, and they'll think that's him writing his life yeah. off. That's what happened to you. You yeah. didn't go straight to university, did you? No, I, I because I'd sort of 
had my goth phase and I sort of joined some bands in Manchester. And then down the road, actually, from, from me, um, Darren Wharton, who was a keyboard player in Thin Lizzy, uh, moved in. So he was the, like the local... It's quite an amazing thing in Oldham. Of course, that, that yeah. you think, so you, you go really through was. Thin Lizzy and think, I'm going to live in yeah. Oldham. So he really was the local kind of pop star. And my dad used to go in the same pub as him and he gave him a demo tape when I was about 16 or 17 and it was, it was really rubbish, you know. But for some reason, when, when Lizzy split up and he formed a band called Dare, a local band with local musicians, and he remembered that this guy up the road who'd, who'd given him a demo tape, his dad had given him a demo tape in the pub. And so he rang up and said, do you want to come down and play and see if you want to be in the band? So I was 18 and, and I was on the way to university. So I went down and he said, yeah, join the band then. So I said, yeah, wow, you know, yeah. So I took a year off and then we ended up getting a record deal. So, so by the time I came around to go to university, we'd signed to A&M Records. You've done your A-levels. Obviously, you've got an A in physics, but a D in maths. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, that's because, uh, well, several reasons. One is I always say to students now when I talk in schools, you've got to practice. Uh, and very few people are natural mathematicians, and I, I, I'm not. Yeah. But, uh, but I found out later, I ended up doing theoretical physics at university because I found out I could do maths because I practised. And so I always say practice, it's like playing a keyboard, you can't just play it. But the other thing is that we, uh, I went to see New Order play a show the night before the exam at the, at the Hacienda. that have more to and do with it. Yeah, so there was also that, so I wasn't in a fit state to do the exam, <laughs> I don't think, afterwards. But when I was 18, I, I thought that I wanted to do other things. So you're in the band for how long? Because it was, it was more than a year it off. It was five years, yeah. So then we, we got our deal, so I just didn't go to university and, and we recorded two albums. That, that picture was from the second album, actually. And we taught, you know, we, the, my first professional gig ever touring was supporting Jimmy Page at the Birmingham Hummingbird. You know, so I just, this is amazing. It's like Zeppelin. And, and then we supported Gary Moore. And then we supported Europe. Remember the Europe, the final yeah. countdown? We did 58 shows with them or something around there. So, so I, oh, I spent there must my... have been a battle for the hairspray then, because they had big hair <laughs> <early> as well. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, so I spent my sort of late, seed, early 20s doing that, just being in a touring rock band, which was a great thing. But then we, um, the band, I always say it split up. And then Darren, who still got the band, rings me up and says, don't say that, we're still gigging. So they are still gigging, they're still <laughs> they're going there. They're still yeah. gigging. So they're still doing shows. So they're still around. But, but myself and the guitar interviewers left. We had a fight in a bar in Berlin, like proper rock and roll. Oh, That's you what you a do. fight? Well, proper fight, yeah. We all skinful. <laughs> Oh, I, 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 I quite like him. <laughs> proper scrap? Well, yeah, proper scrap. I've learned how to box since, actually. I quite like boxing now, so I'd be, I would have been much more effective now than I was then. <laughs> then it was like... That. <laughs> you know, Get off here! Get off here! Yeah, it's like Anchorman, wasn't it? Don't touch the face! <laughs> so, so you split up, and was that the point where you said, right, I'm now going to go to university? Yes, I went back to Manchester, and uh, I rang Manchester University and a guy I still know actually, he's only just retired called Fred Lominger, who's a legend at Manchester and he was the admissions tutor and I said I want to come and I said I've got an A in physics, I've got an S level in physics, I did really well in physics but I got his D in maths and even then in those days it was a bit below, now you need A's in everything to yeah, do yeah. physics but in those days, so he said okay you're a mature student, you can come, but I had a year you know it was October so I'd wait till the next September so I thought I'll, I'll So how old were you at this point? I'll be 23 I think so I thought I'll relearn, I'll do maths I'll practice maths I'll kind of relearn all the A-level stuff that I can, couldn't remember because I've been seeing New Order and things like that and then and then 
but I needed a job. So I, uh, the sound engineer of Dare said, I've got this band. They're, they're going, no, I hate the stuff. It's they're, they're useless, but you can drive them about. Drive them about. I, had, I had a Rover 213, this old car. And, and, and I thought, oh, we'll drive them down the country. I didn't have a deal. And so, so I drove, um, and it was uh, Pete Cunner, who, who then, D-Ream, right? Yeah. <laughs> so no deal. So I drove them up and down the country for a bit. And then they got a record deal and then said, we've got a TV show and you can play keyboards, can't you? Will you just stand in and just do that and so I did and so I accidentally joined D Ream in my year off (laughs) (laughs) so then so then by the time I got to university I was in this band which then subsequently became really successful so when I was at university (laughs) trying to do physics I was also had the number one hit (laughs) with this band accidentally so I I was kind of had this weird kind of you were support and take that on tour. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that's right. And also, bear in mind that you're, what, four or five years older than the rest of the students. Yeah. So you must have been a bit of a dude. Yeah, I did all right. As far as... <laughs> I was going to say in physics terms, you know. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, like, you yeah. wasn't by the Labour Party yeah. for the 97 I mean, election. It was originally... Actually, the lyrics to that were written in my Rover 213, <laughs> driving... <laughs> I think they were bitten on the back of a Ginsters pasty wrapper. <laughs> was, I remember them being written because Pete had the Pete had the, the song that, he, that things were going to get better, but not the lyric. And I, he wrote, I remember him squidding around with it in my car driving back from Middlesbrough. I think it was on some night after a gig. It was first recorded in '92, I think, or something. And then and it had been a minor hit, and then it became a major hit, and then it got yeah resurrected in '97. Well, can I ask when the, when the Labour Party did that, and it, beca- it did become, as you say, it had the resurrection. Did anyone ask the band, or did they yeah. just do it? Yeah, they asked us. And if you think back to that time in '97, I think I think even John Major was a Labour voter in '97. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody <laughs> felt. I think that, that there was that time for a change, and Blair was. It's like Macron in France now, actually. You see this, this young leader and the country was full of optimism. So, so we obviously, we, we said yes. I mean, we, we supported yeah. the, the Labour Party at that time and we were glad to be part of it. This podcast is sponsored by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service, where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want the home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf, alongside other UK TV Play exclusive including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV, all for free. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Explain again 
because I'm sure you've said that a gazillion times what's going on with the Hydron Collider, what we're aiming for, because as I understood it, what we're trying to replicate there is what happened within a millionth or a billionth of yeah. the first second after the Big Bang. So um, what we do is we accelerate particles around. The particles are protons, so the, the helium nuclei, if you like. Uh, sorry, hydrogen nuclei, the lightest element. And we whiz them around and we collide them together. And they go around at 99.999999% speed of light, which means they go around the ring 11,000 times a second. So you get the speed of these things. It's 27 kilometres, they go around 11,000 times a second, crossing the French-Swiss border every time as they go around. Without Immigrants! Without custom, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no custom checks. <laughs> If we end up with custom checks after Brexit, <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do with it. But, and, but, and they bang together. And, and in those collisions, they're so violent, the, there's two particles banging together, and they, you recreate the conditions that were present less than, uh, less than a billionth of a second after the Big Bang, actually. What would you say to people who challenge and say, well, you've built all that, you've got the Hadron Collider, but we've still got people in the world who've not got running water. What's the benefit to the human race of that experiment? Well, there are several answers to that. The general answer is what is the benefit of increasing our knowledge about nature. Yeah. And, and you just appeal to history there. You point out the investigations of nature that have been curiosity-led, almost exclusively, because <laughs> scientists do things because they're curious. I mean, virtually everything. So, so the modern world is, rests on the discoveries that people made back in the 19th century and 18th century. The electricity and magnetism, for example, that drives our world today. Why was that discovered? It wasn't discovered because people wanted to build electric lights or computers. Yeah. It was discovered because people were kind of interested in, in what happens when you play around with wires and things like that. But you can be quite specific about particle physics because particle physics, the spin-offs, are, are well documented. So one thing is, of course, famously, CERN invented the World Wide Web. And why did it invent the World mm. Wide Web? Uh, Tim Berners-Lee did it when he was working there. 1989, uh, because, he, because we had a lot of data, we had a particular problem, which is particle physics generates loads of data, and we're a worldwide collaboration. So we had to have a way of sharing data and sharing expertise and, and allowing a, a, a global collaboration. And so we built the thing that we needed, which was the World Wide Web, and made it available to everybody, and it's transformed everybody's lives. So you can go on and on and on. So there are technology spin-offs. But knowledge we, yeah, exactly. To see that the, I suppose the challenge really for science is this requirement for investment for something you can't even say you're going to get because it's not been invented. Yeah. So the immediacy that some people say that we need to invest in, in other things, and obviously you're getting into that muddy water of, of politics and why people make those choices. But the one thing that you just said there is what strikes me, and it struck me a lot with your programmes as well, it's a global issue. It requires international cooperation because it, these are questions about human existence. Yeah. Do you feel that that's completely understood by the politicians? Because it seems like the scientists get it, but the politicians don't. And as a result, the rest of us probably don't. You know, CERN and also actually the International Space Station are two brilliant examples of what we can do when we work together. And then, actually, I mentioned yesterday, I was um, recording The Infinite Monkey Cage with a panel of astronauts, and two of them had been on the International Space Station. And they both said that the space station, it's something that, that glues countries together. So irrespective of the tensions on Earth, there are primarily Russians and Americans 
depending on each other and working together to do something bigger than the than the local politics of the time, which is ultimately to, to make us a spacefaring civilization. So it's a bigger goal. It's an essential step in our future. At some point, we have to collaborate. We have to treat this world as a single an extremely valuable place. And we have to find a way politically of being able to collaborate together for the, in the interests of our civilization. And that the International Space Station is that, it is a small step. CERN is another one. So you have, for example, the United States and European countries and the South America, but also you have um, Iran and Pakistan and Israel and all, all these countries that have immense political tensions between them, but collaborating together only to advance knowledge for peaceful means, which is the, the founding declaration of what CERN is. And, and so it is a step. It is an example of what we can do when we work together. And I think that's almost as important as the knowledge it generates mm. because you can point to it and say, look, we can do this stuff, actually. We can find out what happened a billionth of a second after the origin of the universe. And as a side effect, as we said, invent the World Wide Web and all these things. But we can do those things only when we work together. This is not some kind of philosophical hippie stuff. We built the most complex machine that's ever been built. We built it with 88 countries paying for it, which means, by the way, that it's, it is a relatively small cost for each mm. individual country. I think that there's a, some statistics somewhere that quite literally we spend more money on peanuts in the UK than we spend on CERN. <laughs> you know, actually, I think... You all, try sending uh, a peanut around. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you need a bigger machine. <laughs> So, and so I think you've hit on it. It's a very good question. I think it's one of the most valuable things that science gives us. I mean, one of my heroes, Carl Sagan, yeah. who, who made Cosmos in 1979, yeah. 1980. Uh, the thing that Carl Sagan was brilliant at for me was, was trying to put these discoveries in context. So why do we care about cosmology and astronomy? Well, Sagan said cosmology is, an, is a humbling and character-building experience because it tells you that we are physically insignificant, first of all, on the Earth. You can't argue with the fact, if you're one planet around one star amongst 200 billion in one galaxy amongst two trillion in the observable universe, and the universe we very strongly suspect is much bigger than the bit we can see, and could be infinite mm. in extent. So we're just a tiny speck, but, but it also tells us that um, civilizations may be quite a rare thing. It, but, he, but he also said, for creatures small as us, the vastness is only bearable through love. Yeah. So he, Carl Sagan, made that association that it's unbearable to assume that there's nothing out there unless you give a reason for human beings to exist. And that reason, that motivation is love. Yeah. And that's the thing that I sometimes think that makes science almost scary when you look at it and go, we've... From a scientific point of view, most scientists, there are some scientists who, who believe in an afterlife and Christian scientists, Muslim scientists, whatever, but most scientists say we are a multifunctioning carbon-based thermodynamic object that will die at some point. When you die, you're gone. When you know that, or you, you take that knowledge on, when you know that, that we are in the vastness of a, a universe that is infinite in whichever way you conceive infinity, when you know that within your lifetime, the steps that we make scientifically are less than a whisper of the, the life of the universe. As you say, 13.8 billion years, our own solar system falling off, you know, human beings 
course of a million years or something. Is your point you go, I can't be arsed doing anything? <laughs> like, what's the point? Or is or does it go the other way and motivate you to, to actually well, reach beyond? You, you, you said that, that we are these thermodynamic machines and as, it, as if it's kind of a less wondrous thing. Richard Feynman said that we are atoms that can contemplate atoms. Think about that. We, we are natural structures that, that have occurred in the universe. We obey the laws of nature, the same laws of nature as the stars. But we can think and we can feel and we bring meaning to the universe locally. It's what Sagan meant, you know, the, mm. the, the, the vastness is variable only through love. What did he mean? Well, I think he meant that those islands of meaning, like places so valuable as the Earth, where atoms can contemplate atoms, might be extremely rare, sparsely populated throughout the universe. So my picture of the universe is of this vast infinity of worlds, but probably there's this little sort of points of light there. And the little points of light are little islands of meaning, like the one we have. And to me, that's the most uplifting thing. It says that we're astonishingly fortunate and valuable and it also goes back to what we talked about well once you know that then surely you work together to protect this island of meaning and try and yeah. try and expand it and spread it a little and make sure it lasts and so the astronomy is say, humbling in character building why, why is the character building bit what it does is, is, it, is it takes your focus off the Earth and points it out towards the stars. In doing so, you then turn around and look back at the Earth again and you learn how remarkable it is. So I think that's one of the most valuable things that science gives us ultimately, is it gives us humility, as we said before, but it also give, informs us that we are valuable and worth protecting. OK. <laughs> <laughs> no, because one question that is the, the, the ultimate question, and, and, I, and I suppose it's the question that people have been asking ever since they looked at the stars, is, are we alone? Where do you stand on that? Because there was a, a, a bit when you went to the SETI Institute and you were looking at that, that wow. Signal, yeah. That wow signal, which was a radio signal that came from outer space, which matched what we would hope would be a signal from an alien, an yeah. alien life form. Yeah. But it's never been repeated. So I think, and it's a guess, because we, we don't know, the evidence we have is that we've looked, as you said, for signals. Um, not too carefully, but we've looked over the decades for signals from alien civilizations. We've heard nothing. We've had the odd anomaly, like the wow signal, uh, but n nothing consistent. So we don't think we've heard anything. And we've not discovered life on Mars yet. And we've been there and looked a bit. So, so we don't know. But the, I think the, the, the sense now is that we may well find life on Mars and would not be surprised if we find microbes in our solar system beyond Earth. But... Um, the question of whether those microbes have become complex living things like animals and plants, multicellular things, let alone intelligent things, is entirely different. And um, I, I have a friend actually who's a, a, a biologist, an evolutionary biologist, a professor at Manchester. Um, and he came to one of my shows actually, the arena shows at Manchester. And I had a picture of the Milky Way. And, and I said what I'm going to say now, which is, uh, so I think that if you look at the history of life on Earth, it took four billion years to go from the origin of life to a civilization, And that's a third of the age of the universe. So that, that's a long time. So if that's typical, it means that, that the path from the origin of life to something, atoms that can contemplate atoms, things like mm. us, is very tortuous and perhaps unlikely. So I said that. 
And he said, no, you should have been much more strong, much stronger. You should have pointed at that Milky Way and said, all there is out there is slime at best. And so in his view, as an evolutionary biologist, life may be extremely common throughout the universe, but places where there are civilizations may be very rare and, and th there may be one civilization per galaxy. And that's what you, you, when you hear that, you tend to hear that from biologists and not astronomers, because biologists know that the history of the evolution of life on Earth is full, full of these chance events that happened. They took billions of years to happen, billions, and they happened once. And that's the, without that yeah. one thing that happened in one ocean, one part of the ocean, uh, over a billion, two billion, three billion years ago, we don't, we're not here. It's, it, the, the Arthur C. Clarke once said that the, uh, there are two options. If you say, are there other civilizations out there? Are we alone? There are two options, either yes or no, and both of them are terrifying. Yeah, but on the other hand, it, it means there's no escape. It means we have the responsibility to look after that, that blue dot in, in space, don't we? It's immense responsibility. Yeah. If that's really true, if, if all there is in, in the Milky Way in a typical galaxy is slime at best, and then there's this place where, where there we, people like us that can have conversations and, and love and make music and all the things that we do as a civilization, it cannot be that we behave in the way that we do as a civilization. It can, you cannot imagine why we would do it if you think about those things. But that's why I asked you the question earlier about do you think we teach science properly in school? And I think there's, there's, there's something that struck me about the, the way you've presented science and the way it's moved on is that there's science and philosophy is, is, is closer than I actually thought it was. When I was taught science at school, science was over there and anything that was involved in emotion or life or anything to do with spirituality was over here. Mm. Whereas the way you present it is you've got to unify the two because if you unify the two, the value of one will enhance the value of the other. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely right. It's a human activity. It's a response to nature. And, and there are many responses to nature. As you said, there's music and art and literature and philosophy and religion and all those things. They're all responses to nature and our place within it. And, and science is one of those. So it's a human pursuit. And I agree with you, it becomes, am it, it amplifies the other pursuits and the other pursuits amplify it. One of the things that is apparent is, you know, you're still a working academic, but you are famous. You have become a face of things and th there's a price with fame. And uh, I've got to play this before we finish because I did a previous show where I had a guest on, Vicky Stone, who's a comedian who did a song about you. And I don't think there's very many professors who have had a song made about them, <laughs> particularly a song in this way, which pulled in so many theories about science and made it quite sexual. <laughs> <laughs> I'm supposed to be listening to the theory that the greater the mass, the greater the pull of gravity. But despite the history of general relativity, my black hole's warping whenever you're on TV. <laughs> so take me on a journey that's interplanetary. Stargaze all night And then maybe you will see That the multiverse Combined with the complex String theory dictates There's a dimension where Brian You will agree To Smash your atoms into my dark matter Give my wormhole A right good batter When we reappear 
periodic table Make the centre of my star unstable Be my home, Mr Apollo Give me your Milky Way and I will swallow If you show me your large heart on Collider. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to be honest, Arthur C. Clarke hasn't got a song like that. No, no, no. <laughs> or Patrick Moore. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what was brilliant about that is we have Brian come on at the end and we, we, we got you a T-shirt with Vicky's face yeah. on it. Yeah, as a like joke for Vicky, as a surprise for Vicky, and then a couple of weeks later, your wife sent Vicky this this picture of the T-shirt <laughs> 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 in the washing machine, <laughs> and, and I love that because we gave you the T-shirt as a joke, and you've obviously thought, oh, I'll keep that. <laughs> <laughs> There's one one thing that I ask all our guests, Brian, is to bring on a photograph of of something that's personal to them. Um, this is the photograph that you've brought. <laughs> <laughs> now, normally, it's about the family, it's about the kids, it's about the childhood. You've brought a picture of a shed. <laughs> I knew that's what you were... You, you thought I was going to bring a picture of the family. Yeah, yeah. But I thought, um, this shed here symbolises for me uh, what filming can be like, which is horrendous. Uh, this is the worst experience of my entire filming career, was in that shed. Um, it's not what... <laughs> that sounds a bit... I'll leave it there. <laughs> no one, will ever, no one will ever know what happened to me in that shed. <laughs> what happened was, we've been filming in, in Africa. It's Wonders of the Universe, actually. And we've been filming in Africa for three and a half weeks, which is roughly how long it takes to film one of those documentaries. Yeah. And, and so we've been all over Africa. And you have to take malaria tablets and all those things. And so, and you're getting very tired and, and, and the crew are together and it, everyone's getting a bit... Yeah. And, and the malaria tablets send you a bit wacky. And at the end of it, the, 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 the executive in London sat there. I always imagine him drinking his cappuccino, you know, in something like that. Going, <laughs> um, said, said, guys, um, we, there's, a, there's a great thunderstorm thing, a thing in, in Venezuela. It's one of the great sights of the world. So can you just go on your way back? Can you just go through to Venezuela and film this thing? <laughs> and, and so we go, yeah, whatever, yeah, just go home. And, and not thinking that, obviously, South Africa to Venezuela is quite a long way. It's about a 40-hour flight. It's ridiculous. You have to go to South, South America, to Brazil, and then up, and it's horrendous. It's about three <laughs> or four flights, and, and they go, it's all sorted. We've got this great guy. He's a great fixer, and it's all fantastic. And so we, after about 40 hours flying, after three and a half weeks in Africa on malaria tablets and all paranoid and dirty and horrible, we, we got off. And, and we, there's this guy, and, and, and he was like some cheap person. I don't know where they got him from. And he said, I've got this great place out in the... In the, in the well, it's a, a magical place. And he took us out there, and, and that was it. We arrived there <laughs> in that shed. And there was no, no food and just a bit of water and a generator and all these poisonous things and these funny sort of insects and stuff like that and massive mosquitoes. And, it was and, 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 and so we all went mad and, and basically <laughs> mutinied. And it was a mutiny. And, and, and we, we, went, we, we got him and we said, right, take us, we're not filming now, take us to the nearest boat. And so he took us to the boat and we went to the guy. So take you, didn't us. Do, you didn't do the filming? No, we, we just, we, 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 we got, we'd fallen to bits. We, we were <laughs> literally insane. It was like apocalypse now. We'd gone mad. We had like sort of 
painting on our faces. <laughs> We've gone insane. And we said, go to the nearest town. And so he took us to town and we got a, a car and said, you, the airport, wherever it is, money, airport, now. <laughs> and, and I got to the airport and I said something that I've always wanted to say, I think. I just went, I want a one-way ticket to Caracas. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so they, so we got, I, I flew to Caracas. And then I, I think I went to Lufthansa because it was the nearest desk and went, Frankfurt! <laughs> and, <laughs> and we all went home, scattered across the world. And it, we'd, we'd, we'd literally gone mad. And, and so it, it reminds me that, that sometimes <laughs> these things are not quite as wonderful as they may seem. That was, that was the, the, yes, the end of my oh, patience happened in I that I would show. have thought, though, when you were there, one of, you, one of the crew would have said, come on, Brian, things can only get better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's, he's actually still there tied to a tree. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> 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 I'll tell you what, that's a brilliant and uh, what a brilliant conversation. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Brian Cox. <laughs> <laughs>